0: episode 20 of the water break podcast here's your host heather jennings welcome to water break where we try to bridge the gap between water operators and engineers in today's episode we're going to discuss confined space our guest today is paula jackson who is the owner of earth water specialist which specializes in training for the water and wastewater industry paula has been a water resources professional for 37 years She started in the water resources with the Air Force in 1984, and Paula is a class four water operator and general industry and construction OSHA outreach trainer. Welcome, Paula. Thank you. It's kind of fun to have you come back because on your other side. Yes, yes. (laughs) Now we're, yeah, we're doing the safety side of stuff. Yes. Well, I thought a good way to start off would be to just talk about what OSHA is. So I looked it up and basically the Occupational Safety and Health Act of 1970 is when Congress created OSHA, or the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, to ensure safe and healthful working conditions for workers by setting and enforcing standards and by providing training, outreach, education, and assistance. Now, from my personal experience, I know a lot of the operators considered OSHA the bane of their existence. Paula, why don't you tell us why it's not?
1: Well, for one thing, I mean, it, it used to be. It used to be the bane of existence for a lot of kind of old school operators. But it's changed. As you said, it was founded in 1970. I think uh, Nixon was president and he signed it. In 1984, I went in the military and there was no safety. Um, <laughs> they gave us hearing protection. Yeah. I mean, they, and, and it's like you said, we were, uh, we were government property. And OSHA wasn't really around for us, and that's kind of when I got into it because I was I was the only woman in a shop of twenty six people in our water resources stationed at Elmendorf, and all of a sudden they're like, oh, we're going to start having OSHA come in, and and you guys do matter, and so they said they volunteered me to become the safety trainer and go to all these meetings and take OSHA around to all of our facilities on Elmendorf Air Force Base and write us up. And I think we had a $250,000 fine going. Oh. Um, you know, on not a fine. I shouldn't say that. It was in stuff that we needed to buy and pay for to upgrade to be in compliance with OSHA. I take that back. It wasn't a fine because it was, it was new. So they had come in and that's what it was going to cost us to bring everything up to the safety standards that OSHA said that we should be at to protect all of us. And the reason that they came in is because there was six civilians in our shop. It wasn't because of like the 19 military in the shop. It was the six civilians I ever worried about. Uh-huh. So from then to now, like you said, a lot of operators think the bane of my existence, but it has changed. The attitudes have changed over the years. Back then it was, well, I've always done it this way. Nothing's ever happened. Um, all the excuses in the world to not want to, Wear safety equipment and be a part of the solution instead of the, a part of the problem.
0: When I started in the industry, I was in the semiconductor industry, and everything was about reducing liability. There was rules for everything and while I was you know in the industry I've seen it change from reduce our liability to you know what? just as a human being, you should be able to go home every day and have all yeah. of your limbs. You know? <laughs> Yes. And you owe that to your family, right? Yeah. You know, know, we want want you to come back the next day. So, you know, attitudes are changing.
1: They are. And this new generation is great because when I do these classes, I used to do these classes and it would be like pulling nails, you know, or it was just really hard to get everybody on board. Everybody's sitting around with their arms across, across their chest in a very defensive manner. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm trying to teach them and I don't teach the regulations, I teach them to be safe. I don't say this is OSHA, twenty, you know, and go off with all the numbers and everything. Mm-hmm. I actually get down into the nitty gritty on what keeps them safe. But back then it was challenging. And now you get people that are more involved and they want safety in their lives. They want to go home to their families. So it's a lot easier now to teach that.
0: Yeah, well, I, I thought it was interesting as I researched it, because it's been a while since I've done Hazwoper or OSHA training. But the one of the things I love is that the law requires the employers to provide employees with safe conditions and free from known dangers. I'm like, that should be a no brainer. But we had to have a law to do that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And in some places, it's safety. There is no training, you know, Mm -hmm. and a lot of municipalities like and I'm speaking of here in Vermont is where I'm, I'm living now. And as far as like you said, you were in the semiconductor business. So private industry, yes, the stats say that if you train people to be safe and you give them all the training they need and all the personal protective equipment, you are going to save money in the long run because you're not paying workman's comp cases. And that was great for private industry, but they never, OSHA never really came around to any municipalities where all the water and the wastewater operators are until the last couple of years. So, and they, they they lack, you know, municipalities, small municipalities and towns, they don't have a lot of extra money for safety and it's not out there. It's not on their horizon. Mm -hmm. So that's where we're kind of concentrating on right now is, is getting more safety training into the municipalities and the water and the wastewater industry which can be very dangerous fields.
0: Yeah. We also mentioned some of the other things that are required, like you have to be able to get your training in your own language and a language you understand. So if you speak English, they can't train you in French. <laughs> I think that's true. <laughs> like I think that's really important uh, you know, for you to understand it and and get it. There's a couple of other things there on that list as well. you know, be able to review the records of work related injuries and illnesses, request OSHA to come into the workspace And I thought the last one, being free from retaliation and discrimination. Now, I know that probably still happens. Yes. So, you know, I just did a
1: class the other day and it was a construction. And in teaching this, um, I always like the uh, supervisors to be there. Uh But sometimes when you start talking about retaliation and discrimination, that's tough. Because if somebody does ask for safety equipment or says, hey, this is unsafe, I don't want to do this, then obviously everybody knows who it is. So I say that still that uh, retaliation and discrimination can still happen and and workers are still kind of fearful of that. So but in most workplaces that I see, you know, workers going and speaking to supervisors to get the safety equipment and the fixes that they need to be in a safe work environment. They usually just have to talk to their supervisors and it happens. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And that's why I try to tell YPs as well. If you need something, say something. Because I've worked with some women in manufacturing where you know, the equipment was pretty much for all the guys, and they're a young professional, and they don't wear a size XL. They're actually a medium, and you know they're catching their safety equipment on everything. I'm like, you need to, you need to say that, something. That's
1: a really good point. Yeah, that's true everything was, you know, made for men in this industry, but that's changing also. So some of the safety equipment that we have now is made for women, or, you know, you can buy smaller glove sizes, or you can, you can, you can find a a lot of stuff that's made for men and women now. So
0: it has changed a lot, I have to say. Yeah. And I I like that. So Why don't you tell us, I saw in your presentation, you talked about how many accidents a year, fatalities. How about giving us a little bit of information on that for confined space? Uh,
1: 122 confined space accidents each year led to 173 fatalities. Now those numbers don't make sense. 122 confined space accidents, yet 173 fatalities. What you see is because there's no rescue available is you have... 122 situations where somebody's trapped in a confined space and a supervisor or other people try to go in and rescue them. So that's where all the extra fatalities come from. So it's really important when you're teaching a confined space class or when you're writing your permit required confined space program that you have to make sure that you are the rescuers. And that is written in there. There's plenty of safety equipment nowadays that you can do your own rescue. Again, I go back to 122 oh. confined space accidents, 173 fatalities because there's no rescue a lot of times available in a confined space, most of the fatalities are atmospheric where there's either a lack of oxygen or a toxic atmosphere like hydrogen sulfide. So, for rescue to get there, it would have they would have to get there in Three minutes to save somebody. So it becomes really important to have your own rescue plan available and pull people out. And again, you know, they make equipment to do that to pull people out if somebody goes down in a confined space.
0: So let's just define confined space then.
1: So, confined spaces, just a regular confined space, I think a lot of us find ourselves in in our whole, you know, in the course of a lifetime. Mm -hmm. It's limited, restricted means for entry and exit, which means that you might need a ladder to climb down in there, or it might have one door and it's really hard to get to. An example of this would be like a a manhole you would have to have mm-hmm. a ladder to get down in there and it would be hard to get out of there and these spaces yeah. are not designed for continuous occupancy therefore like a manhole I'm using that as an example you know it's made to carry wastewater through and and through the whole just you know wastewater collection system so it's limited restricted means for entry and exit not made for human continuous occupancy, yet it was made, it's a big enough space for you to get into and actually perform work if you need to. So um, essentially, if you have to duck, crawl, climb, or squeeze into the space, it's considered confined. So that's just a, that's not a bad thing. That's, you know, a a confined space is not always what we worry about. It's the permit required confined space. So the definition I just gave—that's usually not a harmful environment. But now, you have to throw huh. in hazards like, again, in a manhole, there's biological hazards from the wastewater flowing through there. Oh yeah, it could be oxygen deficient, below 19.5 percent. They could have methane gas in it, making it flammable. It could have hydrogen sulfide gas, yeah. making it a toxic atmosphere.
0: And, and those can those can actually seep into the manholes from the soil itself.
1: Yes. Well, so what happens with that is the wastewater. That's a really good point. Wastewater is um, has a lot of bacteria and microbes in it, and wastewater treatment revolves around these microbes breaking down wastewater. And when that happens, the byproduct from that is methane gas or hydrogen sulfide gas. So that's where you get your gases from is those microbes actually mm-hmm. breaking down uh, wastewater before and it, they should be set up so they're flowing and that doesn't happen so much, but it, it really does. The other end of that is if you are in a manhole and somebody pours gasoline in a manhole or who knows what people pour into these manholes. Yeah, to dispose of something. Yeah, that yeah. becomes a big problem too. So there's, there's a lot of different hazardous things that could pop up in a manhole. Um, It's slippery. It could be, you could have a lift station kick on and then it fills up. So there's engulfment. Um, You know, there's a lot of hypodermic needles now that people flush down the toilet. That's a big, big hazard.
0: Yeah, that, that one, that one's scary because you can get anything
1: from anyone so manholes are like one of the worst manholes and lift, you know, the wet wells and a lift station are the worst, but we have tools too. You know, I mean, you know, we have um, vac trucks, which are huge pieces of equipment that you can put a vacuum down in there and kind of clean them out without anybody going down in there. So over the years we've engineered our way out of putting our workers down in there as much as, Sometimes they still have to get in
0: there, but not as much
1: as they used to.
0: Yeah, which is always awesome. Yes, yes. <laughs> I'm sure you've you've seen these and been in the field. What has been the most hazardous confined space that you've seen?
1: Oh, <laughs> where do I start? I'd have to say back in the military because we didn't have a lot of safety equipment. And, mm-hmm. you know, so I, I have to mention this, um, Heather. When When you have people that have not been trained on confined space, they don't know that there could be a hazardous atmosphere or that they could lose their life in one of these spaces. That's not something that's taught in high school or that's even common sense. If your boss tells you to jump down in that manhole and clean it out, most of the time a worker is going to do that, trusting that their supervisor is not going to put him in danger. So yeah, back then, None of us were trained in safety. So I remember many times jumping into a manhole that I didn't want my workers to go into. I was a uh, non-commissioned officer in charge of my shop for a couple of years. And rather than have them go in, you know, as we saw in the fatalities, you know, the, the 122 confined space accidents and there was 173 fatalities, a lot of times supervisors go in after their people. And um, that was yeah. the case, you know? And so we would go, I remember uh, one time we had a really deep manhole. It was like 20 feet deep and we didn't have a ladder. We had this truck. It was a VAT truck, but it couldn't reach down in there. And there was bricks and stuff in there blocking the flow. And I remember we had a, a winch on the front of the truck and we didn't have any full body harnesses. We had belts, harnesses back then oh, and those uh-huh. aren't even acceptable now you know so so they hooked me to the winch right <laughs> and I was I wasn't letting them go in and these are these are you know these guys were a couple years younger than me they had family they had kids and it was dangerous so we didn't have a ladder the rungs on the insides of manholes are usually too rusted to use yeah they're yeah don't rely so on I, those uh, they lowered me down in that manhole about 20 feet with that winch And then, of course, you know, being the fun job that it is in wastewater treatment, they left me hanging in the middle there and said, hey, we're going to lunch. And that wasn't, <laughs> they were joking. They were joking. <laughs> Here I am hanging there. Was, you know, it's
0: just. And they see there would be additional fatalities from those <laughs> that you went after. Yeah, I mean, I could have but...
1: slipped out of that belt. I couldn't, <laughs> we didn't have any gas, uh, you know, uh, analyzers. So we had no idea mm-hmm. there was a toxic or a explosive atmosphere in there or a lack of oxygen. But I just went in there. You know, I had no training, I had no idea that I could have died doing that. I just know that my boss told me to go do it and I did it, you know?
0: It's kind of a Russian roulette when you're, when you don't have training. It
1: it was, and it was a big eye opener, you know, when I started getting training and looking back at all the stuff that, all the things that, situations that I had been in. And, and I just say, I can't believe I'm still alive after, you know, all the safety stuff that I've been through. So Mm -hmm. Crazy.
0: Well, I'm kind of glad I wasn't on that team too. Oh, you would have had fun. You could have gone in, and went, you know, right after me and picked it out. See, there you go. There you go. Oh my gosh. Oh, not all confined spaces are the same. You know, how do I tell which one do I have? Let's discuss that. Uh, another good point.
1: So yeah, a regular
0: confined space,
1: limited or restricted means for entry and exit, not made for continuous occupancy, but it's still big enough for you to get into and work in. Now, you know, Mm -hmm. a lot of situations that's fine, but then people have crawl spaces under their houses. They have the small dugout basements and those are considered confined spaces. But when you start throwing in that, that extra component, like an atmospheric hazard or a mechanical hazard, any kind of hazard that could hurt somebody, the gases again, flammable or toxic, electricity, engulfment, noise. Yeah. And like we said, with the, the biological, with hypodermic needles now, so you've got that. You also have different viruses and stuff in that wastewater that you have to be really careful. Of. So when you have a confined space and then you add one of those components to it, it becomes a permit required confined space. And what that means is that now you have a written administrative program on how to enter that manhole in a safe way. And it's a set of procedures that need to, you know, like standard operating procedures mm-hmm. um, that need to be followed. And if they're followed, then everybody should be safe doing that task. And with that comes what they call a confined space, a uh, permit required. So the permit is like a checklist yeah. of things that you check off, like you take your gas meter when you check for oxygen deficiency or a flammable or toxic atmosphere. Um, The workers, you know, whoever's entering might be a part of that so they can see for themselves that it's safe Uh, ventilation, you know that's another part Mm -hmm. of the permit process. So they have to check off that they put ventilation and they're blowing out that space to make sure there's fresh air in there. You're looking for electricity. You're making sure that if it's like a forced main or a lift station that you're locking out and tagging out the pump so they don't come on when you're in there. Yeah, You're wearing PPE like Tyvek suit so you don't get wastewater on you. I always wear a respirator when I'm in spaces now. I got I got a really bad bronchitis one time from being in a space with manganese in it and now I always wear a respirator. So in that permitting process it goes over how many people are there usually three people is a safe number. You have your safety equipment like a a tripod with a winch on it that can pull you mm-hmm. out of there if something happens, if they need to get you out in a hurry. You still put a ladder in so you can get out on your own if you need to. That's just double protection. And it goes, you know, yeah. goes through the whole checklist on what, how you're going to, you know, go in the space, what PPE you're going to wear. You're going to monitor the space for, you know, oxygen deficiency and gases continuously when you're in there. What are the attendants on top? Are they going to be looking at their phones and playing uh, Candy Crush? Nope. That's in this process. They can't be on their phones. They have to be present yeah. and, you know, and, you know making sure that they are looking at the entrant, making sure that they're not wobbling around or something that they need help. So there's, you know, the the permit process, if you follow that, then nobody should get hurt. If you're in a hurry and you don't follow that and you skip steps like the tripod, then how are you going to get somebody out? So the the permit is a really important process, especially in wastewater treatment.
0: When I was in the private sector, if you had to do a permit required confined space, like the itemization of it was enormous, but we also had to have two people above us review it on the environmental health and safety side. So just because they wanted to be able, someone to look at it and say, hey, have you considered this? Have you considered that? And I think that outside voice really helps. You also want to let people know, hey, we're working in this area. Yes, no, no, that, no, you that know, is really... Communication yeah, portion the more of that. that no,
1: especially if you're doing any lockout or tagout, it's really good that everybody's on board. They get sent out an email. We're going to be, you know, in this confined space. Please be aware of that. If, if it affects you, you know, talk to us. And then having somebody else look mm-hmm. at it, yeah, they might think of something that you're not. They might see something and say, hey, have you thought about this, you know? So you're right. It's it's always good to have that extra set of eyes on that permit and, and asking, you know, questions. It's always good to ask questions.
0: I wanted to also ask, so you manholes don't typically end up in like in a nice field all by itself it's usually right in the middle of the street yeah (laughs) so you've got traffic you've got vibration (laughs) how do you mitigate those those things that makes it
1: really you can have all the safety gear in the world you know around that manhole but you're right if you put that in the middle of traffic then it's a whole nother ball game you have uh you have to do traffic control which can be hard sometimes. I mean, if you set up cones, people can go through cones. If you if you set yeah. your trucks up so that if somebody hits the trucks, they're protecting that manhole, that's usually what we recommend. So you said, mm-hmm. you know, like you have a big, maybe a vac truck, that's a huge piece of equipment and you position it in a way that's going to kind of block the manhole, which brings me to a story one time. And this, this was, uh, this is not my personal story, but it was, you know, you hear a lot of stories when you're in classes. That's my favorite part about teaching these classes is hearing about all these Uh interesting, interesting things that happen happened to people. So they were, um, there was a municipality and there was two people going out to do a check on a manhole And it was a small side street and it was first thing in the morning, like eight in the morning. And instead of traffic control, it wasn't that busy. They were able to just block the street, you know, put cones at the end because it wasn't that busy and and they figured it wouldn't be a problem. And so they set up the tripod and one of them had, they did their permit process. They went through all the checklists, they checked for the atmospheric hazards and all that. And then one of them entered, the entrant entered. And started doing some work down there. And then all of a sudden the attendant and and you're okay to have one attendant and one entrant. It's safer. I I recommend two. But if a lot of places there's there's just yeah. not the manpower or woman power. Yeah. So they were, the person was down in the, in the manhole doing work. And all of a sudden a car came around the cones and the attendant is like, there's a car coming, you know, and he's saying this to the, you know, the entrant can hear him. And so the entrant is like, well, should I get out? Could I, should I crawl out? What do I do? And he said, no, just hang on. And apparently the car came right for him and then veered off oh. and and hit a fire hydrant. And so in that situation, do you come out of that manhole and risk getting run over? If you're attached to that tripod and a car hits it, that's even more dangerous, oh, right? So there's... There's so many, you're right. Yeah. The traffic part of things really makes it dangerous. So it turns out it was a, a woman that was drunk first thing in the morning and she, Oh, yeah. my stars. So, so, I mean, anything can happen and you can't always be ready for that. Mm-hmm. If you are in yeah. traffic.
0: No one's allowed to drink yeah. after midnight in the city. <laughs> and- yeah.
1: So was, that's that was a crazy story. They came out of it okay, but if that car had, if she had pushed that tripod, it would have pulled him out of the manhole and probably really wrecked his body. And then if she had drove her car and then the tire landed in the manhole, then he would have been trapped in there. So there's, you know, you try to think you got to really beef up the
0: traffic control, especially now with a lot of distracted drivers. Just people walking, you know, sidewalks and stuff. I was on a environmental project and we were getting vapor samples and mind you, the holes, you know, you could reach down into the hole, put the, attach the canisters and so forth like that. But we had put cones all around us. And apparently these people walked on the same path every day of their lives or their career and never looked. And so we had a couple of us that almost got stepped on and kicked <laughs> our equipment thrown, you know, kicked across the way because people literally did not see the cones because they were so used to just walking crazy. This, this one path. And I'm, I'm like, thank heavens we're not in a more dangerous situation. But I was, I was surprised at how oblivious people were. Yeah. Yeah. People are Habit. attached
1: to their devices to the point where it's dangerous and people walk out in front of traffic. What if, what if you got an open manhole and they drop in there there, you know, they could really, oh gosh. that could be fatal or break a lot of bones, you know? So yeah, there's so many, there's a lot of different hazards associated with permit required confined spaces and it just depends on where you're at and you have to kind of look at that big picture you can't focus on the space you got to Mm -hmm. stand back and look at that big picture all around the space as to what
0: could happen yeah oh I love this discussion and I want to transition now to like the different levels of control for hazard control yes so for hazard
1: control they look at elimination number one yeah, yeah, just get rid yeah, of it. Hazard so nobody has to go in. And they, you know, <laughs> back, back when they first started safety stuff, you know, like it was 1987, I think, uh, when I was at Elmendorf and we started. And it takes a lot of resources to eliminate hazard because people do a lot. We're doing a lot of that work. Yeah. But one of the big ones was a good example of eliminating the hazard would be to get a vac truck, which are very expensive, you know, probably like half a million dollars. But they can yeah. be used in these situations instead of people going in there. This vac truck can do a lot of the work. So elimination is one. Substitution. Okay. You know, the substitution of hazards. Well, I I know we've changed out pumps yes. before.
0: What kind of, of pumps you oh, yeah, yeah. and the access so to them. So that's a
1: good idea. Yeah. So some of them used to have to go down in. Now you can bring them up. Is that what you're talking about? The ones that you can bring up? Yeah. You yeah. Know, bring
0: it up or, yeah. you know, put in the controls. In a place. So you don't yeah. have to
1: go down in there. So that's a really good example. Yeah, I remember back in the day, being down in some wet wells and trying to get them loose and you've got wrenches down there and it's slippery. So yeah, that's a great example of substitution. administration, Administrative, uh, using your whole standard operating procedures that people have to, that are trained, you know, they're trained on and they have to follow that. That's the next step. And engineering methods for safety, isolation, placement of barriers to eliminate the potential for employee contact with a physical hazard, stuff like that, temperatures, moving parts, vibration, physical hazards. And then the last level of defense is usually PPE. But, um, so to go back for engineering methods, like safety, like a tripod, and you know the winch and fall protection on that and then mm-hmm. your harnesses you have your gas meters stuff like that and ppe of course you know comes into that like hard hats and and nowadays they make ppe that you can wear and that's comfortable and it's yeah, not going not
0: as bulky yeah, it's not you're, it's not going to hinder you so so yeah those are the lockout tag out that was so big everywhere i've been you do not ever touch this and they would have two or three locks on them so we would have to find two or three people and usually someone has gone on vacation or something like that to finally take the locks all off but that that's a big deal cutting off yes. the power yeah. electricity to the area it's just although I, I have known uh, one of our uh trainers for the lockout tag out he was telling us how he used it to control his kids tv time and we're like how do you see he, so he would lock out tag out the uh the plugs oh my gosh hey you have to do what you have to do right that's a good idea but I was like you know that that, that's not a bad idea but I don't think that's how it works yeah well and that's funny because um
1: I worked up in the oil fields up in Prudhoe Bay Alaska and we would change shifts you'd be up there for two weeks at a time you'd fly up you'd spend you'd work 12 hour days Mm -hmm. 14 days straight and then you change shifts and the other person would come up fly up and then you talk about, you'd have your meeting, uh, your transition meeting. And we did that. And I remember uh, one time and the person that I was taking their place, they left. And then all of a sudden I found a, something that was locked out and tagged out with their lock on it. So I had to track them oh. down and call all over And we used to work two weeks on, two weeks off. So sometimes, you know, you take off and you go on vacation for two weeks someplace, you know, to Hawaii or whatever, you know, you just, everybody was always traveling and stuff. And we didn't have cell phones back then. I don't think cell phones were not a big thing. I remember beepers and then they were getting cell phones. So it was really- Pagers or something like that. Yeah, it was really hard to track down people. But I remember I finally tracked them down and I said, can I take this lock off, you know, just to follow the procedures. He was, you know, so apologetic for leaving it. But yeah, we finally removed the lock.
0: (laughs) (laughs) On the private side, we would actually time it. You know, we expect to be done by this time, you know, you need to be on site to review it, to take your, you know, your thing, because we would have people go on Christmas vacation or something, and we would do all of our work over the Christmas holidays. And then you're like, crap, we've got to, we've got to turn the facility back on. (laughs) I need that person to come back. You know, um, one hazard we really haven't covered yet, though, is animals and all that kind of stuff, vectors, snakes. I had a lovely experience with a javelina, which is a, a wild pig that we have. Out wow. <laughs> Let's hear about this wild pig. I've never had that experience. Well, and it wasn't in a confined space, but we were walking lines and checking manholes and all that kind of stuff and supposed to be okay on my own in this very suburbanite area. And all of a sudden there was like five adult javelina and four baby javelina. And everyone had a gate on their area. So I couldn't jump any gates. And I was a little too far away from the car because I was checking yeah. the line. And uh, thankfully someone drove up and honked the horn and gave me a second to get in, but they're not known to wow. be nice. And that, that one was like one of those where you're like, Oh, thank you, God. Yes, that, that's, a, that's bad. <laughs> but, you know, oh, that was scary. And it was supposed to be an area that was, you know, pretty developed and the scariest thing is maybe, you know, the chihuahua on the other side of the fence. Yeah.
1: So. so I haven't run into that yet. I was up in Alaska. We had bears, but I, I never had any encounters as far as safety wise. I encountered them, but it was never an issue. But when I was in New Mexico, rattlesnakes, mm-hmm. rattlesnakes and black widows yeah. and uh, scorpions being in like a valve pit. So I also worked, I was stationed in New Mexico and white sands uh missile range they have a we were in charge of the reservoirs to cool down the test track and stuff and so we'd have to go out Mm -hmm. there once in a while and and check things and they if it was like a if you picture like an empty swimming pool but then at each end there was like pits that had valves in them and stuff and i kind of put my face into one pit one time and luckily there was There was water in it and there was a rattlesnake. So if there had been no water, he could have, you know, the rattlesnake could have totally just bit me in the face, but there was water in it, so he couldn't jump off. So that was one. And then many black widows in electrical panels and scorpions. And I've had a lot of
0: encounters that
1: way, but I've never been bitten or anything.
0: That was something that we always included as well as, you know, the animal hazards but I remember one time I'm like oh we'll be fine we'll be fine I can you know walk this line alone and that's when the javelina came and I'm like I will never do that again crazy so sometimes our lessons are yeah. learned hard
1: well like you said you know you can't always account for anything you can have a great safety plan but stuff like that you cannot write into that safety plan safety plan because you just don't you don't see that coming, you
0: know. But uh, yeah, travel in twos. Yeah,
1: definitely. Then you can, <laughs> you know, kind of outrun the other person.
0: No. <laughs> yeah, I know exactly. Right. <laughs> okay, so I go in from there. Uh, you know, the, I wanted to cover what the actual difference was between the authorized entrance, the attendants, and entry supervisors. We've kind of mentioned them as we've gone along, but like, what is the difference between the three? Um,
1: So the three roles, the entrant
0: is the person
1: that is going to be, you know, going into the the confined space and their role is to know, you know, what they're going to be doing at, you know, for the job in there, what they're expected to do, make sure they have the tools ready to do it, make sure they are wearing their PPE and watch the atmospheric testing so that they know and they feel confident. Um, It's really important to feel confident in your safety equipment. So, you know, looking, you know, at the meter, making sure that there's nothing in there. And then actually my thing when I go into confined spaces is I will, I make sure that it's well ventilated because even if the meter says there's something in there and you ventilate it, you're good to go as and and you keep ventilating. Um, So the entrant needs to know what they're getting into, know the space, know their job. And then they also need to trust the attendant who is on the top side of the confined space, usually helping them and watching out for hazards up top and uh, maybe giving them tools that they need. And they're, they're monitoring the space, you know, for atmospheric hazards. They're asking uh-huh. questions. Are you okay? How do you feel? You know, and and just making sure that they, you have everything you need and and they're not distracted. They're actually right there helping you out. And then, so you have your entrant going in, then you have your attendant that's you know, helping them and watching them and you're attached usually to a tripod with a winch and a fall protection thing on it. So they're, they're in charge of that. If you fall or something happens, that attendant is going to crank you out of there with the winch and Uh hopefully, you know, and then, you know, call 911. So, usually that's your safety plan. A lot of spaces, it's hard to get people out of. They're not all set up so you can put a tripod in. You have to put different types. You sometimes have to set up the safety, setting up the, the safety lines and everything is takes more time than it does to do the actual work. But uh-huh. that attendant is kind of your rescue plan. If something happens, they're getting you out of there. And it's not hard to do if you have yeah. the right equipment and you're using it the right way and everything. And with confined spaces, it's the atmospheric hazard that was fatal to people in, in minutes. So you can't you can't call a fire department because they're not going to be able to get there in time. So you have to that attendant has to be able to get you out of there and make sure they're going to save your life. And then you have your your supervisor. They are the ones that kind of look at your permit and ask you questions, make sure you have everything in line. And they'll sign off on it just to know they're double checking you. So that's kind of that extra yeah. set of eyes. Like you said, when you used to do them, you would have somebody else look at them. That's, that's a really good piece of the yeah. puzzle. So those are the three roles. And if you want to throw in the fourth, what they call rescue, then the attendant and the safety supervisor can become that rescue role. But you that's the most important thing to me when I teach this is making sure if somebody's in a space that you can get them out without having to call for help because you're not gonna have the time to wait for help to arrive.
0: Yeah, especially if for whatever reason they're on the other side of the city or at the area or something like that. Well, in Vermont, it's a rural
1: place. There's, There's not paid fire department everywhere. Most of them are volunteers. So by the time somebody gets paged out, they go from their job to the volunteer fire station and then they find you on site. That's going to be 10, 20 minutes or longer.
0: When I was in manufacturing, they said not to call 911 because 911 wouldn't find you fast enough. You called the people that were on site that, I mean, because you'd already submitted the plans and everything, people would know you were there, but you would call the local place first because they wouldn't know which part of the factory you were in. They would just know someone called, you know, to the factory. Right. We had to be specific with whom we we talked about, and that's part of your rescue, isn't? You rescue by others, rescue by other companies, rescued by the people that are there. Yes. What are the typical response times and goals that people are looking for?
1: You're looking at three minutes because it's somebody breathing. So non-entry rescue is that tripod. That's gonna any kind of you know with a harness get somebody out of that space into fresh air and I would add that I would want you can and you have people trained in first aid to maybe do CPR if they need to or and definitely somebody to call nine one one and get like an ambulance there or something but the non entry would be you know getting Mm -hmm. them out so nobody else is going to go in and become a fatality like we were talking about in the beginning because that's what when I first got in this field. I remember uh, being in uh, New Mexico and uh, hearing on the news that um, five people died in a tank. They, one person was in there cleaning it. Somebody came by and they saw them laying on the floor. So they went down there to investigate. They crawled in the tank. They went down and then a third, uh-huh. you know, a third person, then a fourth person. Yeah. And, and this is how this rule started back then was, the people that were trying, you know, nobody has any idea that as soon as they walk in there, like if you have something that displaces oxygen, when you take a breath, it displaces the oxygen in your lungs, and you just go down. Everybody, you know, I talk to a lot of people, and they're like, "Oh, that's no problem. I would know if there is an atmospheric hazard." But that's not true. If if you are in an atmosphere that displaces oxygen and you take a breath, you just go down. You're you're out, and then you mm-hmm. know, in a couple minutes, you'd probably be dead. And that's when other people try to go in and save you, which any of us as human beings, you know, you see a coworker or somebody in trouble, we're going to try to help them. And that's when your life is taken because you're trying to help somebody because you're not educated on the fact that there could be a hazardous atmosphere or, you know, that there's any danger in there. A lot of people think, oh, well, maybe, you know, there was a medical emergency and, and this person went down. So they don't think about the atmospheric hazards. And that's
0: what usually gets people. So the different gases have different densities as well. So you know, like hydrogen sulfide is going to sink, methane is going to you know be up towards the top. I mean, it could be anywhere along that exactly. line. Exactly. Exactly. Oh, so, yeah. So
1: if they're if so. they're standing up and then all of a sudden they kneel down to do the work or something, then they take a breath and they're de- they're out. They fall over. And then some of these spaces have water yeah. or wastewater. So if they go face down, they could drown to get back to the rescue. Non-entry would be somebody, the attendant getting you out of there. Entry by others. Mm-hmm. Um, you can pay, like you said, in a situation. Uh, With the company that you worked at, they do have rescue crews on these, you know, in these private companies to get people out and they're trained um, to rescue them with the right equipment. A lot of fire departments aren't even trained in confined space rescue. That's a special training. And I know here in Vermont, there's not a lot of of, uh, fire departments that are trained in it. So, you Mm -hmm. you know, a a big company uh, might have a rescue crew that has all their equipment They have uh, supplied oxygen they can put on their face, you know, and go down in there and get get that person out. So they're they're all set up for safety to go down and and get somebody out. Hopefully they're going to be tied off. If you have somebody that's in a space and they have that harness and you can pull them out of there, that's the best situation. Yeah. And again, the response times are really minutes. So you don't have much time to get in there and get somebody out. You have to have that plan in place before somebody even goes in there to make it, you
0: know, happen. And that's the whole reason why they're, per, you know, called permitted. Yeah. So you have to think, you have to write it up and think about it ahead of time. So that plan B and plan Z yeah. are, and then are there. And a
1: checklist so you don't forget anything. Because when you're doing jobs, I mean, there's a lot of pieces yeah. to this, you know, so that the permit becomes like a checklist so nobody forgets a piece of that.
0: If there's an emergency kind of deal, like, you know, a pipe blows or something like that. And it's atypical, you know, usually you would plan it all out. If you don't have those checklists in place for general, you might be forgetting something and going down and you're like, ah, well, I forgot the monitor this time. Right. Kind of deal. Because, you know, there's a break that has to be solved now or something like that.
1: Well, one other thing I'll mention, Mm -hmm. I I taught this class one time and it was a, there was a fire department there, a municipality. Again, a lot of these don't have the... training, but they attended, you know, at least they were attending the confined permit required confined space training I was doing. So then there was the water department and then the wastewater department. So we did the classroom portion of things. And I always like to go out and use your equipment. We go out to a manhole, we set up, Mm -hmm. you know, and usually it's somebody new that's never, had the harness on or yeah it's your turn yeah, for the wedgie. exactly. you know you got to <laughs> break the new person in you know so we decided to do that and, and people have to feel comfortable and trust their safety equipment and I always recommend everybody has their own harness so it's ready to go and you take care of it and it's yours any PPE you should have your own you shouldn't have to share it yeah and so we went to this one place and it was by a fuel farm And so we had three different gas meters, one from the fire department, and then one from the water department, one from the wastewater. Well, two of them detected an explosive atmosphere and one of them didn't. So this made me do a lot of thinking because never had I ever had three meters. You know, I just usually have one. And so that made me think that, you know, you can't trust that you have to have two gas meters now. So they make portable ones that people can clip on to their harness. And then there's the one that Uh the attendant uses. So now you have two of them. So I always throw that in that that happened. And that made me realize that if if somebody was using that one meter that didn't go off because the explosive atmosphere, that could have been a fatality, you know? So it's not a bad idea to
0: have the two gas meters when you're entering some of these spaces. Yeah. Even if you have to rent it. Yes. Even if you have to rent it. So Is there anything else like something you would, you would say, you know, to just kind of finish up everything that we've talked about?
1: Yeah, I would say.
0: Last bit of advice. (laughs) Anyone
1: listening to this, if you, you have your, your work environment, you have your coworkers, if something was to happen in your workplace and one of those people or you were to die because you weren't using any safety equipment. That's just going to change that whole workplace forever and ever. It's going to be, not to mention the family of the person. So really think about, stop and just think about, am I doing this safe? Is there something that I can do that's going to help me in this situation to make it safe? Look at that big picture. Just stop and take a minute to say, am I doing this as safe as I can? And I try to do that now, being in this, doing this for 37 Mm -hmm. years, but new people, well, stand back and just ask yourself, is there something that can hurt me right here that I can eliminate so that doesn't happen?
0: So that's my last piece of advice. <laughs> I think that's a good one to even just start with. I tell my kids you can do dangerous things safely, but you know, of course my definition of what safely is and their definition isn't always yeah. the same. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, that's some of it you just, you've got to train and you got to learn for, but Oh, I really appreciate this discussion today about confined space, Paula. This this is good stuff.
1: If people aren't trained in it, they just don't realize what could happen. It's just like your kids. They're young, they're invincible because they don't realize all the stuff that could happen. So that's what you're there for. And that's what this class is for
0: is to make sure
1: people are aware of what could
0: happen to them. I agree. And there's so much more we could discuss. We really did a high level discussion because we just didn't have time for more. But for our listeners, if you have questions, please feel free to contact Paula directly and her contact information will be in the show notes. Now is the time we turn it over to the Wanda's Water tidbit. And if you've joined us for several of these podcasts, you'll know that this is a part where we salute the unusual and sometimes brilliant part of water. But this time I should probably warn you for our more delicate listeners uh, that we're going to be talking about poop today instead of water. So continue listening at your own risk. Yes, right, Paula? it
1: ties right into manholes
0: and uh, it, it can be a better you know,
1: transition.
0: There you go. I, I thought it kind of fit well. I became aware of today's topic through Improbable Research, which is a group dedicated to honoring the achievements or the research that makes people laugh and then think. And this is actually an article from the 2019 Journal of Archaeological Science. And it's called Experimental Replication Shows Knives Manufactured from Human Feces Do Not Work. The first time I saw that, I was like, wait a minute, what? Why would they work in the first place? <laughs> my, my brain automatically started going through, you know, what could you do uh, to reinforce it or whatever? But um, from the article, it says you can... Basically, you can make a knife out of the human feces and will it work was their question as well. And it started with some graduate students that had become curious about an ethnographic account of an Inuit man making a knife from his feces to survive and thrive. The story is so prevalent in academic literature and pop culture that they really decided to test it out. Kudos to these grad students that developed a whole testing methodology for this. I, I don't know that I've Anyways, but uh, one of the grad students went on a heavy fat diet to replicate the diet of the Inuit and another had a more Western style diet for data replication and a control kind of deal. And then they defecated, they used ceramic molds to shape the feces into the knives. And then they froze them to negative 50 degrees C. And I'm already thinking this is like more work than I want to be involved (laughs) in. I don't know about you, Paul. Yeah,
1: that um, you know, I was up in Alaska for 15 years, and I never heard the story. But uh, I can think of better ways to make knives out of. <laughs> <laughs> but I guess if you're really so. bored, you want to see if it's true, you know?
0: Yeah, and I wonder how much you know alcohol was involved in this. But um, they then used their formed knives to cut pig hide. They included the muscle and tendons and so forth. They got a you know a piece of pig uh, skin and and tried cutting with it. In the words of one of the students, both knives—the fatty diet and the Western diet—left skid marks on the meat, and were not considered functional. And I was like, "The choice of words. That's just this—the choice of words that just." Threw us yeah, yeah. But what's even better is that you can watch a video about this, and so we've put that in the show notes for you, as well as the official paper. Yeah, things to do when you're bored in the uh, grad department, right? Glad didn't make spoons or forks. <laughs> <laughs> or even oh, plates Paula.
1: okay you know if you really want
0: to take that yeah. to the next <laughs> limit <laughs> yeah that uh, yeah mm, I'm like I still have trust issues with that knife <laughs> yes <laughs> like I said it, it's something to make you think uh something to make you laugh and this was kind of fun Paula I wanted to Once again, thank you so much for joining me and for your indulgence with our tidbit today. To our listeners, if you want to read anything we've talked about today, you'll find the links in the show notes as well. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to the Water Break Podcast brought to you by Probiotic Solutions. Probiotic Solutions offers a broad spectrum line of biostimulant nutrient products for bioremediation of water, wastewater, and soil. Find more information about our products and the show notes for this podcast at probiotic.com.